idea that we were on the brink of independence from fossil fuels or that it's just going to take a few more years to be independent of fossil fuels has always been ridiculous. If supposedly that switch would be so easy or if we would have been finishing line of doing it, then why was dependency on Russia so significant? Right. Why is we are now back to burning coal, yeah. not just in Germany, all over Europe. We are back to chopping down our forests to, to, to produce fuel from wood. We are returning to the energy sources of, of the Middle Ages, right? of, 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 the, of, of medieval times. I mean, this is not any sign that that we have been on the brink of energy independence via renewables it simply was uh was not true it's embarrassing right yeah. you, you you project or you, you present yourself exactly as you said as as the most advanced kind of the, the, the most progressive the most enlightened part of the world and then a ramshackle internally dysfunctional autocratic dictatorship like russia <laughs> They flick the switch yeah. and all of a sudden we talk about, oh God, hopefully nobody has to freeze to death in the winter. Ralph Schulhammer, welcome to The Antidote. It is a great, great, great pleasure to have you on. Well, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a, it's a pleasure, Ralph. And usually on this podcast, I like to cover more evergreen topics, right? So topics that when you listen to them in four or five years of time, even 10 years, they're still relevant, right? So in some way, timeless lessons. But I do break this rule when I find that there are some, um, some topics of modernity that are so being so criminally underreported in the media. And I think what we're going to talk about today is is one of them. So thank you for being here again. Uh, helping us make sense of these complicated issues. And I would actually want to start by asking you uh, if you could talk about the recent sabotage of Nord Stream, right? For, so for a person who hasn't been following the news too much, it's not reported that much anyways, right? If you could tell us what happened and why it is relevant. Oh, yeah, with great pleasure. So thank you again so much for having me on. And I think since you mentioned the evergreen topics, I think in a certain way, uh, what happened to the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipelines will become an evergreen topic in the years to come. And I'll tell you in a second why. I mean, I, I think the most important uh, point to start with here is, uh, and I know this is something probably everyone, if you listen to us, is going to hate, but I'm going to say it anyways. At this point, we do not know who did it. So, so, so you know, and, and there's, there's a saying that uh, another, I think, a fantastic um, podcaster and, and Substack writer uh, said that by the name of Doomberg, which I highly recommend all of your viewers and listeners to check out, particularly on Twitter. They do mostly commodity stuff, but they, they, are, they are really fantastic. And they have this, this great line where they say that, that speculation in the absence of knowledge uh, tells you more about individual psychology than anything else. And I think that is very true. So you have, you have now those who wish that it was the United States. So they say, obviously, it's the United States. And then you have those who don't want it to be. The, so everybody, then everybody says, well, uh, cui bono, who benefits? And I'm just following. All of that is possible, but we simply don't know. So I think that's just my starting point. And so, so just to be clear from the outset, neither I don't know. Um, again, I can speculate and I'm happy to do so. But to say I know for certain simply would be you know, an yeah, exaggeration. Yeah, and re realistically, a lot of parties would benefit from a situation. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. And, and we'll come to this very good. We'll come to this in a second as well. But there is one thing we also know. Uh, those who did it know that they did it. And those who didn't do it also know right. that they didn't do it. And what this means is 
this was a deal breaker in many ways mm. because apparently now attacking critical energy infrastructure has become something that is no longer off the table. And that is something that worries me. We tend to underestimate the entire uh, energy grid, uh, whether in a you can actually say globally, is a very fragile thing. Yes. I think this is something we completely underestimate. So if you can take out, we saw this a little bit in the United States uh, a year ago, right, when all of a sudden there was a sabotage act uh, to a pipeline and it, it pretty much cut off parts of the US from their gasoline and, and, uh, and raw oil a crude oil uh, supply. It can, these things can go very quickly. The same we see currently in Europe, right? Once the electricity grid is coming under pressure, under trouble, a blackout or occasional blackouts are a very regular thing. And let me also say here something that I find is very important when you say, well, what's the problem, the occasional blackout? But that's a little bit like saying, well, oxygen is important, but what's the problem if you have, you know, Suffocation. 300... Exactly, yeah. right? It's like saying, well, you have reliable oxygen 364 days a year, but there's one day where if you know oxygen, well, then you're going to die, yeah. right? If, so, so it doesn't help you to say you have it 99% of the time because you need it 100% of the time. And that's very similar, I would argue, with energy as well. So this is a new quality of, of conflict. Uh, we have now reached this point, apparently, where attacking critical energy infrastructure is no longer seen as a taboo. So in this, in this way, I think this is a new dimension of, of, of interstate conflict. And as I said, whoever did it, know that they did it, and whoever didn't do it, also know that they didn't do it. But they, of course, are going to say, okay, if this is the new normal, then we're going to also move into this direction. So this is a new dimension of, of a conflict. And I think there will be a growing realization worldwide that you need way more protection for anything related to energy so the idea you just have your you know your uh your deep sea drilling here your pipelines there your power plants uh over there uh, and, and you kind of just assume that nothing can ever happen yeah. to them i think increasingly within governments that is going to change so they will be treated just you know uh, as as crucially as as other areas uh, you know, as, as your, I don't know, your, your nuclear launch codes. So in this sense, this was an event, probably you could say like, you know, 9-11. 9-11 was a, a singular event, but it really triggered significant yeah. change afterwards. And I think that the sabotage of Nord Stream mm -hmm. 1 and Nord Stream 2, once again, independently of who did it, will have a similar effect. Yeah, you think it's a, it's a wake-up call and uh, f for, many, for many, many governments to understand that... Uh, Warfare is taking a, another dimension where maybe it's not launching missiles directly into the city, but it's maybe doing even more long-term damage because you're you're obstructing their capacity to to live life essentially. Oh, absolutely, and I think this is this is something that we only gradually start to realize that in fact our dependency on energy, whether it's elect electricity or otherwise, has grown significantly. Yeah. Not just from the perspective of survival, but uh, we should not underestimate the fact people are, especially in Europe, we are used to a certain standard yeah. of living. And and we don't want to go back to, let's say, a significantly lower standard of living. And that can be enough for a hostile power of any kind. It really can, doesn't matter who that is. Mm -hmm. to say if we can you know, make electricity a luxury good, if we can make... You know, we can send the Europeans exception. back to the Dark Ages, literally. Precisely, yeah. right? Exactly. And as you say, somebody could then say, well, but you lived in the Dark Ages before. 
Well, we didn't. Our ancestors yeah. did, but we don't want to go back to this. So this is a, you know, this is not really any kind of, of consolation to say, well, it's just as it was a hundred <laughs> years ago because nobody wants to live yeah. like it was a hundred years ago. Yeah, definitely. I'm uh, I'm Lebanese. I grew up for part of my life in Lebanon, and many people don't know this, but still, in 2022, there's not a reliable uh, electricity grid in Lebanon. So we do have uh, constant power outages throughout the day. And you don't, you don't, you shouldn't underestimate how much it complicates life and how many things you have to think about that you don't usually think about and how much it obstructs progress on a more national level. If you don't have energy, things don't get done. Yeah. And I think you make another important point. And uh, this is no, not, not meant to offend any, any Lebanese, but just as a matter of fact, if a society is used yes. to these things, and if a society is used to an unreliable electricity grid, if they are used to, uh, let's say, currency problems, they handle it differently. But in Europe, we are not used to it. And again, this I don't mean to be offensive no, no, towards European. Definitely. I'm myself, right, as we both are. I don't mean to offense here, but it's a fact. Like if you are used to a certain comfort, it's very hard to get rid of that comfort or to, let's say, not be not be significantly upset if that comfort should become uh, should come under pressure. And I think this is uh, what also European politicians underestimate in the current situation. The question is not if, as you correctly pointed out, we're going to be thrown back into the dark ages. But I think people will react very, very sensitive mm. uh, and, and then politically relevant. If you have prolonged, let's take the worst case scenario, just hypothetically, if you have prolonged power outages, because what does that mean? I mean, for example, I live in an apartment building on the 11th floor. So, uh, you know, it's not so bad, but there are people who live on the 30th floor. Yeah. So if you say, well, elevators are not going to work for uh, for three days uh, and the supermarket doesn't have any fresh food because their refrigeration uh, is out and the bakeries don't have fresh bread because their uh, their ovens cannot work without energy. And then it turns out that nobody has stacked up on canned food and, you know, propane powered um, uh, gas cookers and these kind of things. Those gonna yeah. be three very uncomfortable days, uh, and then of course you have a run on all these issues on all these things, and they probably be out of stock very soon. Yes. So for for a continent gonna... of people that are used to getting their food delivered from Uber Eats and Deliveroo, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Precisely. Yeah. So so I'm not sure. Again, I think some some politicians in Europe are way too sanguine about this mm. when they say, well, with a, a German politician recently said, well, you know, power outages of three to four hours every day are acceptable. And again, I don't I mean, no offense, but maybe they are in Lebanon, right? Maybe they're in Afghanistan, yeah. but they are not in Germany, right? This idea that people will say, oh, you know what? That's actually not so bad. Uh, this is not going to happen. Yes. So the. The, the rural areas might cope a little bit better with it, uh, especially those. This is, for example, my plan. I'm just going to move to my parents into the countryside for the duration because they still have a, a, a wood uh, a wood fired stove and all these kind of things. But if you live in, a, in an energy dependent urban environment, uh, hours or days without energy are again, they might not be life threatening, but I think uncomfortable enough. Yeah. Uh, that you will think very hard about whom to vote for in upcoming elections. Yeah, yeah, and, and you you did a recent uh, Twitter post which I, I found very interesting. You say Europeans are about to rediscover both the laws of economics, you cannot print money forever, and the laws of physics. If you are out of energy, things stop working. So can you can you take a step back and help us understand? First of all, what is happening? So for many, many people just have no idea that there is an actual energy crisis. So if you could just explain what is going on 
and maybe then we can go into how we got into this predicament. Yeah, I mean, thank you for quoting this. I think I have really upped my Twitter yeah, game in recent, uh, in recent months. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's a horrible, it's like, it's, it's a horrible platform, but it, it is a little bit addictive too, yeah. I have to admit. Um, no, this is a, the, the, I think one of the things we have to keep in mind, uh, and, and, and this, is, this uh, is not making easy or light of anything that's currently happening, but of course, what's happening currently with also the war in Ukraine, it exposed some of the core weaknesses, uh, particularly in, in Western Europe, but these weaknesses have been around for a while, so we should not make the mistake, and I know the temptation is high, especially once again for the political class, yes. to say, oh, this is all just Putin's fault, right? this is all just the war in Ukraine. It's the trigger, right? It's, uh, uh, I don't know, it's, it's like you are, uh, if, if you are, you're lifelong on a bad diet and you, you, know, you develop certain you know, health issues, yeah. then uh, you, it's, it's not because of one particular thing you ate the night before. It is because you were on a bad diet probably for most of your life. And it's a similar situation here. Uh, the Europeans have been selling, not all of them, right? And, and just for dramatic effect, I'm generalizing here, it's, it's to one respect one way or another true for all of them so we can kind of parse right. it out in a different percentages in a but we, we've all Precisely. been addicted on, on gas right exactly while at the same time right telling our populations uh, that we make this huge switch and transition to green energy uh, which i'm not opposed to but uh, the thing is if you want to switch from one resource to another one you have to make sure that everything is in place that you have no you know significant scarcities along the way and this was I don't want to say a lie, but it was definitely misleading because if you look at the numbers, I mean, Germany is a good example. Uh, before the, the, the so-called Energiewende, the energy transition, they imported about 37% of gas from Russia. With the transition, they imported 55%. Mm. So, so actually, the more we were supposed to switch to renewables, the more we depended on Russian gas. Then you're sitting in Florence at the moment. I think in Italy, it was even worse. Yeah. Uh, right, Italy closed down pretty much any, not all of it, but significant numbers of, of energy production. Uh, they built a few wind farms, but almost all the energy production, I think about 70% uh, in, in certain areas, was switched to Russian gas. Yeah. Uh, so so this, this, and, and the politicians did this. I think we have to be honest about this because they wanted, they wanted to, to pander and to virtue signal and to appeal to a very specific segment of the population and a very specific segment of the electorate. Uh, and now everybody is reluctant to take responsibility for it. But I think this is a truth we have to, to, to face. If you, to put it a little more bluntly, if you hand over to uh, a potential enemy the keys to your economy, uh, the, you, know, you give them all the leverage, and now you complain that when they see it fit to use it, well, it's not them who are stupid, right? So you may, again, <laughs> I'm no fan of Russia, yeah. uh, but the thing is, if you outsource your energy needs to them and you simply expect them to just always act in your best interest, you can do this and it's going to work until it doesn't. Uh, and I think this is exactly the, the, the experience we're currently making. We, we do not produce enough energy in Europe. Uh, we do not produce ele enough electricity in Europe. Uh, prices have been way too high, especially for consumers, uh, which I think is another element, uh, an important element because high prices for energy is in fact an, an impoverishment or a form of impoverishment for the population. Everyone could be much richer in Europe if we would fully uh, use 
and employ the resources we have, but we decided not to do it. And now the bill is coming due and reality is, is, is setting in. And I'm just afraid once again that if we look at what's currently happening, nobody is really having a plan beyond winter. I don't think we have a significant plan for winter, hmm. but we also don't have a plan beyond winter. There is this weird, again, idea that, that oh, we have to make it through winter. All right. And what happens then? And that, that's a that's a, a bit of a shame for an area which uh, thinks it's uh, one of the most developed and, and rich in the world, right? To to lower its standard to we should survive winter with uh, the least amount of people dying from uh, from the cold. It's it's uh, I think you're you're way too polite here. Uh, it's embarrassing, right? Yeah. You 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 project or you, you present yourself exactly as you said as as the most advanced kind of the, the, the most progressive, the most enlightened part of the world. And then, you know, and, and a, a ramshackle, internally dysfunctional, autocratic dictatorship like Russia, <laughs> they flick the switch. Yeah. And all of a sudden we talk about, oh, God, hopefully nobody has to freeze to death in the winter. You're absolutely right. I mean, it makes us look like it's, you know, it, it's, it's a... It's almost a little bit like in H.G. Wells, The Time Machine, right? where you have the, the Eloy on the surface, who is, you know, very effeminate, uh, 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 weak part of the human race, and they only lie around, you know, in the sun yeah. all day and, and, and enjoy all kinds of pleasures. Ex exactly. Yeah. While you have, you know, in the underground, the, the, the Morlocks laboring away and pretty much, you know, doing all the things that, that the Eloys need to survive. And... One part of the story is, of course, that the, that the former then, you know, occasionally cannibalize and eat the latter. And this is exactly what we see now. If you think you can make yourself a comfortable life independency of Russia, of China, of, uh, uh, you know, the Middle East, whether it be Saudi Arabia or others, um, at some point, reality is going to call. And this is precisely what we see happening right now. Yeah, it's a it's a national security issue to be dependent on somebody else's energy resources if they're your allies. Imagine if they're a warmongering country like Russia has historically been, right? It's, uh, it, it hasn't been a, a forward-thinking political decision. And what you think it, it's been is a self-inflicted energy crisis because we wanted to transition to green energy so quickly without a proper plan, shouting political slogans to satisfy electorates. And this is what, what happened, right? So we, we, we transitioned to unreliable energy sources while secretly actually just getting our energy from, from Russia. So we were acting like the nature keepers of the earth, but we were actually getting addicted on, on Russian gas. Am, am I correct in my interpretation? No, you're absolutely, you're absolutely correct. I mean, the, the idea of, a, which is a vision, I'm, I'm, you know, I, be, I don't begrudge anybody who has that vision, but the idea that we were on the brink of independence from fossil fuels, or that it's just going to take a few more years to be independent of fossil fuels, has always been ridiculous. Uh, uh, that for the very simple reason that also nobody talks about, because even producing renewables needs a lot of energy, and it needs a lot of fossil fuels for that. And we don't even have to talk about all the other um, you know, necessary mining and, and all these kind of things that you need in order to produce, you know, uh, solar and wind. So there's, there's this idea that this just falls like mana from the heavens. Uh, this is simply not how this is working. Once again, I'm not opposed to any of it. But the idea that you can power your entire economy with it is, to be quite frank, is simply ridiculous. 
Um, and and we see this now. I mean, isn't it when people say, well, you know, you're just against renewables and you are just a shill for the, the fossil fuel industry. Uh, yeah, but that's more by coincidence than by design, because we see it now. If supposedly that switch would be so easy or if it would have been, you know, just in the in the in the finishing line of doing it, then why was dependency on Russia so significant? Right. Why is look at, at global coal prices? I mean, we are now back to burning coal. Yeah. We are born in Germany also, we are, but not just in Germany, all over Europe. We are back to chopping down our forests to 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 produce fuel from wood. I mean, this is this is <laughs> the reality to, yes. to quote. Yeah, yeah, to quote you to yourself, I mean, we are returning to the energy sources of of the Middle Ages, right? Of of, of the of, of medieval times. I mean, this is not any sign that that we have been on the brink of energy independence via renewables. It simply was uh, was not true. And and to say that, whatever then people call you, uh, as I said, I mean, you can call me whatever you want, but it doesn't change the fact that that what we see is is actually our economies in Europe becoming more dirty yeah. because we, we are switching to, to fuels that are more dirty than gas. We had, in my opinion, the greatest brainwashing operation in the world or the history of the world when it came to nuclear mm. energy. Uh, we created a sentiment that nuclear, basically that any nuclear power plant is a, like a Hiroshima just waiting to happen, which is, again, scientific and factual nonsense. Yeah. Uh, but we have cut ourselves off from all the possible replacements both for fossil fuels or at least, let's say, uh, low CO2 emitting fossil fuels, fuels. I mean, gas is not perfect, but it's better than coal, right? It's better than, than oil. And, and nuclear has, of course, its downsides. But when it comes to CO2 emissions, when it comes to reliability, it is one of the best options we have. Mm. And But the point is, allow me this last one point. Everything in this world has risks. Yes. Everything does, right? If we look uh, worldwide, the number of people dying in car crashes is horrible. How could you get the number to zero? Well, you know, ban cars, hypothetically. Yeah. But we wouldn't do this because we say, yes, every death is tragic. But overall, we assume that the, the, the positive impact or the, the, the benefits of more, you know, more modern transportation outweighs the downsides. I mean, same with airplanes. Every airplane crash is a tragedy. And, you know, if no airplanes would fly, we would have zero airplane crashes. But we don't do it. And the same is the case with nuclear, although even there, the, the so-called nuclear incidents uh, have been significantly embellished, again, by, by a media that is part of this, what I can only call a brainwashing operation. I mean, the number of people that died of radiation in Fukushima it's, was one, yeah. was one. Uh, and the other thing is, uh, I mean, building nuclear power plants in tsunami endangered areas. I mean, that's another topic. Japan is an island. For example, Germany is not an island. Yes. So the likelihood that Bavaria will be swept by a tsunami, <laughs> as far as I know, yeah. is close to zero. Uh, then, and that always says, oh, well, Chernobyl. Well, again, Chernobyl was not even at the time a state-of-the-art uh, nuclear uh, production facility. And it was f over 40 years ago. This is like you saying in the 1980s, you're not going to step into an airplane because something happened to airplanes in the 1940s. Yeah. So again, we, we are completely irrational. Well, not, not irrational, let me put it differently. We have turned the matter of energy, uh, uh, the matter of nuclear, the matter of fossil fuels into a quasi cult, into a quasi religion. This is always my thing because people say, oh, Ralph, you're against renewables. Not at all. 
where renewables make sense, where, you know, whether, for example, in England, right, in the United Kingdom, you have certain areas where you have the conditions that wind power can actually become part of the base load of so the needed right, energy. Because it's consistent. Of course. Yeah. Precisely. Am I for this? 100%. Yes. Um, if you say you want to say, you know, southern Italy, if in Sicily, uh, you know, solar farms make sense, I'm the first one to say, yes, let's do it, all for it. Does it make sense in northern Europe, the solar farms in Sweden, in Norway, where for five months you barely have any sun? No, it makes no sense. And I think this is the way we should approach this. My position is a very simple one. Ideally, the monthly electricity bill for the average citizen in Europe should be 20 euros. Mm. Like, th this would be my political goal. And we should produce electricity to such an extent, energy to such so an extent. That we can export it. That, exactly. Yes. Uh, and, and so many plants we see circulating now. So a, a, a professor at an Austrian university uh, recently said, well, the best idea would be, and, and might, that might be a good idea, even though I see some technical problems, would be to build huge wind and solar farms in Northern Africa, in Algeria, in Libya, in Tunisia, right? And then export it to Europe. And my point is, so first we depend on Russian gas, and, then and now we want to switch that, and now we want, exactly, yeah. now we want to depend on Algeria, Libya, Egypt. I mean, if you allow me to say this, are we insane? Yeah. So, so, so we move from one unreliable partner to the next unreliable partner. And this is my point. These things are to a certain extent, uh, no, it's a cult. And we would have resources in Europe. We would have natural gas in Europe. Again, does fracking have downsides? Absolutely. Can these downsides technologically be solved or mitigated or minimized? 100%. Yeah. So, so the idea that, oh, my God, if we frack in Germany, you know, it's, it's like the, then the earth is going to yeah. open up and swallow Germany. It's, it's not true. You will have problems in certain areas and you have to address them just as you have if you build, you know, a hydropower. Uh, if you build a dam, right, sometimes potentially people have to move. So, these, so, so there will be downsides. But as always, there are no perfect solutions. There are only trade-offs. And I think yeah. we tend to make the wrong trade-offs. Yeah, and uh, there, there almost seems to be this, uh, this wish from Europeans that they can have a perfect continent which is not touched, which is perfectly in line with nature while we, we export our dirty work to other countries, right? To, to the inferior parts of the world in some way. They, they can produce our energy and we can buy it back from them. But... Re yes. realistically if we want to be independent if we want to become relevant economically again because that's one of the other things you, you touch upon often is europe has been in a, a descending spiral of economic distress for for decades now right if we want to become yeah. have a role again in the world this is something we need to start thinking seriously about yeah no you're 100 right here uh, and this i think what you just touched upon perfectly is i think that shows you a little bit the, the quasi religious component on this every political idea or vision that ends up in a potential a potential utopia should make us suspicious mm. so if somebody tells you we can produce exactly what you just described we can produce perfect clean energy in abundance for everybody and it's not going to cost us anything and it's you know it's, it's like like you know milk and honey <laughs> from, from from nowhere i am by default suspicious yes. because that's never how it works and i think you're right but i would even go a step further with what you're saying uh, which is it's one thing if you make mistakes at home 
but we also export these this mistakes abroad. I mean, Africa is a beautiful example here. I mean, Africa is a continent that population-wise, 95% of global population growth happens in Africa. So that continent at some point will no longer be capable unless they change to contain the, these these population pressures. Right. Either people are going to be able to live at home or they're going to move. But what do, does a country need if, for example, Nigeria wants to take care of 250, 300 million people, which is almost the the, the population of the, of the US, and this is the direction which it's going. They're going to need reliable, constant, high levels and, and, and high amounts of energy. So if then the Europeans go down there and the United States do it too and say, well, you cannot build pipelines, you cannot explore, you know, these and that um, um, sources of fossil fuels, you have to do you know, all renewables, it's not going to suffice, it's not going to be enough. So you condemn those people to poverty, yeah. but nobody wants to be condemned to poverty. So they come in Europe, to Europe. That's one yeah. thing. And what bothers me even more is, so it's, it's almost insidious. So you say, oh, look at what's happening in these countries. They have all these problems because of climate change. No, they don't have these problems because of climate change. They have these problems because of the lack of energy. And they have a lack of energy because it's climate policies by the West that condemn that to that climate shortage, to that energy shortage. So the problem in Africa is not climate change. The problem in Africa is climate policies. Yeah. And unless we, we realize what we are doing to the Africans in the, in the energy sector, I mean, this is work than the inheritance of colonialism or the inheritance of imperialism, which might be bad enough. But it's one thing to look into the past. I mean, we can say, okay, we might took the past away from Africa, but now we also take away the future. And I honestly do not know how you square this with the supposedly humanistic approach or the humanistic content of the environmental slash green movement. I find it's a very anti-human a neo-Malthusian ideology that is in some ways, I'm exaggerating here of dramatic effect, but in some ways is opposed to human life, yeah. which they openly say. They are the ones who constantly complain about there are too many people on this planet and, and you shouldn't bring children in this world and you have you know the, the more extreme fringes where you have women say, oh, I just got sterilized or, or you know a man who just got a vasectomy because this is, will reduce their future carbon footprint. They don't bring children into, the, uh, children, sorry, into this world. That's just, you know, th this is not a life-affirming yeah. ideology. And again, this makes me it, just it's very, our, very It's suspicious. our new religion. It, yes, it is. Yeah. It absolutely is. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's absolutely infuriating. Also, because it's also very hypocritical. Because that is exactly what Europe did. We we used all the necessary energy, dirty energy resources during the industrial revolution when Europe became exponentially richer, and that is what gave it its predominant role in the world. And now we're taking that away from from uh, from the Africans essentially and, and precisely and you also you you were on a podcast recently with uh, Bjorn Lomberg who talks about this extensively right the best way to get people to care for the environment is to actually get them as rich as possible as quick as possible right so it actually might be counterintuitive we might be doing we might actually be damaging the environment following this approach because poor people will burn the, any res any fuel uh, source that they can to not die Right. So the best approach might actually be to burn all the coal, all the oil, all the gas they need 
to become as rich as possible so that they can actually build a, a greener society. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this is my only, and I'm a huge fan of Bjorn Lomborg, right? And he's, he's one of the best people in this area out there. The only problem I have with him is um, he looks at this uh, as a purely uh, a technical problem. And, and I think what you addressed is the key point here. This is an ideological problem. This is a cultural problem. I would even go so far that, that at least some within the environmental movement um, even if there would be a solution, let, let's say there would be a magic button to push and all these problems would go away, I don't think they would push that button, right? It's, it's a, a, if your entire existence, if you want, or your entire identity is tied up in the so-called climate crisis, well, at some point you don't want it to go away because this is who you are. And, and I don't, again, I, I don't begrudge this, these people, but I think this is the way we have to approach this problem. This is for many people a matter of identity. Yeah. So this is no longer, this is, so, so for, for you, I guess, and for me, as I said, I'm, a, I'm an agnostic in areas of hmm. energy. My, my principal guideline is I want more of it and I want it as clean as possible, yeah. but again, not in utopian, uh, in utopian terms. But if you say you wake up and we have people that live like this, you wake up every morning, you know, drenched, in cold sweat because you feel that the world might be ending tomorrow you approach this topic completely differently right you're not even open for pragmatic solutions because your argument is the only way to to address this is you know we need to stop economic growth right now we need to stop burning fossil fuels right now Uh, and again some people say oh ralph you're exaggerating but i don't think i am i mean if you listen to extinction rebellion rebellion or uh, i think in italy it's la l'ultima generazione or last generation or letzte generation you have all these movements and this is precisely what they are saying right i mean this is exactly what they are saying and and like with every ideological movement i take them at their word but i think it's it would be time for the adults in the room to to stand up and say you know what uh we appreciate your enthusiasm but you're simply wrong and and we still pander to them right they're always called activists and idealists Mm. no no they they in many areas have crossed over to uh, I hope you forgive me if I'm saying this, but they have crossed over into you know, low-level terrorism. Yes. If you glue yourself to streets, if you damage like they did in the United Kingdom, if you damage uh, uh, gasoline stations uh, that, that people need you know, to, to fill up their cars to go to work, uh, if you destroy uh, uh, cultural uh, uh, landmarks by gluing yourself to them or, or, or trying to, to, to spray paint on them or so, no, that's not activism. Yeah. If neo-Nazis would do this, we would not call them, you know, nationalist activists or nationalist idealists. We would call them what they were, right? We would call it a, a, a low-scale or low, uh, a low-level form of terrorism. And this is, I think, precisely how we should treat this yes. as well. Yeah, yeah I, I love that you use religious terms because uh, to use an analogy, the church wouldn't want the concept of hell to disappear because that's how you keep your... Uh, the people coming coming to church and listening to what you have to say right during during mass so definitely but uh, i want to i want to push back slightly on that uh, ralph because uh, one thing on, one yeah. thing i try to do on this podcast is to have uh, different points of view right so something i uh, i interviewed actually a, a journalist a couple of weeks ago who would actually take the more environmental left-leaning stance than the one we're having at the moment so i would like to try to bring a similar argument to the table and i think they would say but this is all a necessary these are all necessary growing pains in the transition to net zero that maybe we should get used to having higher energy prices because this is better for the environment. And in the long run, if it's better for the environment, it's better for the human race. 
Okay, um, let's let's assume uh, if we're playing devil's advocate, let's assume for a second that that argument is correct. Yeah. And and I'm I'm absolutely happy to 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 grant uh, th- this argument. But my my question or my counter question would be okay. Let's assume you're correct. But how are these growing pains distributed? Um, who is actually feeling those growing pains? You cannot have this transition. Let's assume also it's possible. You cannot have this tra- transition to net zero, particularly in democratic countries, if you lose 60% of the electorate. So even if this, again, even if everything that, that the other gentleman or, or, or gentle lady said is, is correct, my question would be, how exactly do you think is this going to affect uh, voting behavior? So if you, if you say we're going to ram this through because it's absolutely necessary, right. uh, you have two ch- you have two choices. Um, either you convince the people that exactly all that you said that you know that that you know that that you're gonna pay ten euros uh, per per liter of of gasoline at the and it's for the good of everybody. Uh, exactly. Again, we'll we'll see how commuters who have to commute to work or or small families yeah. or single moms how they're gonna yes. react to these prices. But if you say, well, gasoline, bread, and water and heating is gonna cost three times as much, right. but it, it's, it's necessary. It's always the the upper and the upper middle class that have these arguments for for greater goods. That can work from, exactly. from their laptop anywhere in the world. And, and I find myself fortunate enough to say that most of my job can be done from a laptop anywhere in the world. So Yeah, same here. Yeah. yeah. But let me let me add on then a second argument. So if we say, all right, you, so if, if, if you grant me this one position of mine and say, yeah, you're probably right, that there will be many people who, who won't go along. Well, what's then the next step? The next step is, and again, some of them said this openly a couple of years ago. Right, uh, and they still do. Then they say, "Well, then we probably have to temporarily suspend democracy." <laughs> right, so, so because it's 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 a, that that if any any time somebody talks about emergency, yes. right, this is ultimately what they mean. It's an emergency, and and they say this, yeah. right? I mean, from Geta Thunberg to others, they say, yeah, well, all you do is to quote uh, Ms. Thunberg. Is, it's, it's all blah blah blah, right? We need action. We need to do it now. Basically, what they're saying is discards the process of consultation of democratic parliamentarian decision making because the emergency is so strong we have to do it uh, uh, immediately yeah. and, and it's and funny it's always th- it's always for the uh, for the emergencies that would benefit the people that are proposing them when they get into power it's right precisely yeah. precisely and this is why i'm very very you know i just i get suspicious yeah. When people say let's temporarily suspend, you know, you know, certain processes, because everything in the world of politics that's temporarily, after a while, becomes permanent. Yeah. We, we, we saw, uh, we, saw do... we saw a little bit of that during the the COVID pandemic, for sure. Yes, yeah. oh, we did. No, you absolutely, you, you could not yeah. be more right. And and this is why why if the argument is right, we need to suspend democracy. Uh, and, and we need to inflict tremendous pain on the lower middle classes and the working class to solve this, cri- this climate crisis. Uh, sign me off, right? I'm, I'm, I, I will neither you know, verbally nor otherwise be part of this yeah. because the other thing is I don't see the willingness to take steps to alleviate the cost for the lower classes, right? You cannot be, to give you another example, you cannot be pro-lower CO2 emissions and at the same time be against nuclear energy. So I do not take any environmental activist seriously who is on the one hand telling me the climate is collapsing because of CO2, but then at the same time says, oh, but we can't use nuclear energy, which is very much low CO2. So so this is, the again, it's always my point is uh, unless I don't have the feeling that the person I'm talking to comes from a, a point of, of actually wanting to solve the problem, but comes from a point of, of kind of, you know, 
religious fanaticism or cultish fanaticism. I mean, I'm still going to talk to them, but but I'm going to talk to them differently. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I, we already see we already see some of this with, for example, Ursula von der Leyen's uh, uh, declarations when she talked about for winter we probably need to flatten the curve of energy consumption, and, and it just talks to the huge disconnect and quasi authoritarianism that some. European bureaucrats are starting to have uh, regarding the the population, which is yes, we we probably need to do the same things we got you used to during COVID, which is sacrifice voluntarily to flatten the curve of yeah. whatever the emergency is at the moment. Precisely. Yeah, yeah. So you call this a uh, you you call this an existential crisis for the European Union. What what do you think? What are the scenarios? What are some likely scenarios you see happening? Well, I think what we're going to see happen, and it will depend a little bit on the the, the severity of the of the crisis. But uh, despite the promises to the opposite, Europe still consists mainly of nation states. Yes. And uh, once things become troubling, the let's say the old national instincts kick in. So can we, for example, really rely on countries that? that can be self-sufficient when it comes to energy, that they will cut energy to their own population to export it in solidarity to other countries. I do not think that this is going to happen. I mean, we already heard like Norway. Norway is, of course, not part of the European Union, but they're still part of the larger European economic uh, area. The larger European, exactly, yeah. the larger European project. So they already said, um, you know, if we are, are, are feeling an energy crunch, Norwegians come first. I mean, the French, I think they, they then kind of took it back. But there was a, at least uh, a leak of information saying that they are considering uh, scaling back or completely stopping exporting electricity to Italy. Mm. So these things are already being, let's say, part of the conversation. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that this is how it's going to happen. So, so uh, and we saw this during COVID. I mean, we saw this. I mean, Italy in many ways was left entirely on its own once they were hit hardest by COVID. European solidarity was not what it was supposed yeah. to be. So, so the the idea that during an energy crisis, will, which will affect as many, if not more people, as as the pandemic did in in certain ways, that then all of a sudden there will be this this outpouring of of solidarity. I'm, I mean. Again, once again, I'm, I'm not wishing for the catastrophe to happen. One warns of it in order to avoid it. But I do not see th this happening. So to rely on solidarity of people that I don't think necessarily feel particular solidarity yeah. is a, a, a very, very dangerous game. Yeah, and you already see that, for example, in countries like uh, like Hungary, right, where they've actually went, uh, they've actually gone and made deals with uh, with Russia, if I'm not mistaken, to guarantee gas exports to their country yes. during winter and and i think there i mean i know this is a little bit off topic but if you maybe allow me one or two sentences on this i think there you see another development uh within europe which is that that in western europe and and by the way just to be very clear from the outset I, i'm neither defending nor attacking either one of those visions i'm just pointing out that they are yeah. different uh in, in western europe although kind of national interest still exists there is some legitimacy for the idea of the European Union as the supranational institution, right? The idea that the whole is more than the sum of its pieces. Right. That idea is not as dominant in Eastern Europe, right? I think that the, in Poland, in Hungary, in other countries, they view the European Union as a way to promote, to forward their own national yes. interests. So for them, it's not we do something for the sake of the European Union. It's much more the European Union is something that helps us in our own, you know, natural interests. 
And this is something you see now precisely the example you used. Uh, the Hungarian, at least the Hungarian government, uh, makes no qualms. I mean, they, they say it openly. They say uh, our primary responsibility is to our people. Uh, our primary responsibility is to ensure that the, the Hungarian economy is not going to stop. And uh, we currently cannot do so without resources from Russia. So regardless of what the EU is planning, we need exceptions for that. And by the way, the EU has, has granted almost all these exceptions. Um, and you see it in other areas. You see it in other areas as well, right? That 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 uh, Poland is much more belligerent when it comes to the Ukraine-Russia conflict, uh, the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Pardon me, uh, than other parts of Europe. Um, because they have it right had, at their border. Exactly. Yeah. You you had court decisions in Poland, for example, in other uh, Eastern European countries that made absolutely clear, which was circum was completely reversing the trend in Western Europe by saying no national law comes before European law. So there is a divide in Europe. And as we both probably know, right, um, the stability of a system is tested in times of crisis. Yes. So this is, this, this is, I think, again, something that Europeans or that European institutions get completely wrong when they say, oh, my God, everything works so well. <laughs> we cannot let this crisis yes. destroy it. No, no. The crisis is the test. Yeah. Right? This is not the test. You, you, like in, when, when everybody when everybody is happy. It's easy to be to show solidarity because nobody needs it. Yeah. But now that actually there is a crisis, we see how far that solidarity actually goes. And I, to be honest, and I'm not happy about this. I cannot stress enough. This is not something I'm, I'm, I'm glad yeah. of. I'm not gloating. Uh, but we have to admit that in many ways, Europe is failing that test. We'll see how we move forward then. But at the moment, uh, European unity exists, uh, you know, in the editorials of the Financial Times or of, you know, certain uh, publications. But on the ground, it is not there. I mean, we see it with the sanctions. I mean, this, this is all we make sanctions and immediately make exceptions from the sanctions, which is a, a very European way or European Union <laughs> yes. way of doing it. That's hurt you, unless but, you know, it, uh, but nowhere it hurts us. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. You know, you know, uh, take a shower without getting wet. Yes. And and this is just not how any of this how any of this on the long run is going to work. And this is also why nobody geopolitically takes us particularly seriously. I don't want to get off topic, but I think you have many indicators of this. I mean, this goes back to your very first question. The only geopolitical power we Europeans feel that we have some actual influence on are the United States, more for historical cultural reasons yeah. than for raw power reasons. Yeah. So there is almost an, an underlying hope that somehow the United States are responsible for everything happening in Ukraine, because if they are responsible, they are the ones that we have an influence on, and then we can actually play a role. Okay, that, wow. Okay, wow. That's, uh, that's extremely interesting. Wow. Yeah, so do, do you see the European project potentially in, uh, in jeopardy? On the long run, oh, at the moment, very much so. Okay, uh, I, we we are strained, uh, I think, in many ways than we realize, for reasons that go beyond the energy sector. It's connected to the energy sector, but they go beyond it. Um, as you certainly, and as your listeners certainly also know, uh, the, the dollar, uh, the U.S. dollar, has become a wrecking ball. Uh, uh, it's you know we heard for for decades how the yen, the euro, the renminbi all will replace the dollar. The dollar will end as their global reserve currency. Yes. We see yeah. exactly the opposite at the moment. The dollar is stronger than ever, uh, and this will remain like this at least for the foreseeable future. Um, and uh, what we see as a consequence of this, Europe never really solved its finances and. Um, Before we started this recording, I just repeat something we said before. So my, my love for Italy is unmatched. Um, my love for the Italian people is unmatched by anybody. But uh, this does not change the fact that when it comes to public finances, uh, Italy <laughs> yes. never got its act together. Yes. 
and once again, like this, this is not me. As I said, I love the Italians, but uh, for decades they pretty much lived off the money printing machine of um, of the European Central Bank. Yeah. We, we don't know how big the shadow economy in Italy is, so there might be almost you know a hidden power there that 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 makes things not that bad. But if we look at the current numbers, uh, a financial crisis, uh, a two thousand eight financial crisis. Uh, uh, 2008 style financial crisis in Europe is possible, but this time with a severely weakened Germany. Yeah. Germany is currently in a state of severe weakness of, of domestic economic turmoil, of a dying uh, middle class, of a dying uh, in industrial class. Germany is de facto deindustrializing at the moment. So, who is going to bail out Europe? Uh, we, we hope it's going to be the US, but again, would, do we really want to rely on this? Is all my point. I don't want to rely on the US. I don't want to rely on Russia. I don't want yeah. to rely on China. I think that 477 million Europeans at some point should be capable of relying on themselves. And I think, but this will mean some hard decisions and some painful decisions. But until we are willing to do this, uh, the crisis will continue. Yeah, yeah. this is uh, very interesting because many times uh, a more conservative approach and point of view is viewed as anti-European, right? But what what you're saying maybe is the most pro-European thing you can say. That is, if we actually want to be taken seriously, if we want to be independent, if we want to have a prosperous Europe as a whole continent, we need to become uh, energy sufficient and we need to become economically more relevant again. Precisely. And, and this, is, this is at the moment we don't see that happening. And uh, as you correctly point out, this is not being anti-European. I think it's the exact opposite. And we, there was this weird vision. There was, I think, it was almost twenty years ago uh, in the in the in the very renowned and and famous uh, magazine Foreign Policy. There was an article by the futurist and geopolitical expert Parag Khanna. So just if your listeners are uh, uh, curious to to check it out, you find it if you just Google it. And it had this weird title that, that you know, Europe as the first metrosexual superpower. <laughs> and the the entire argument of the article was that that Europe doesn't need military, Europe doesn't need hard yes, power. Yes, it will be all, our are, elegance it, and ability to dress well that will. Uh... It, that's literally what the what the article said, right? That the, the cartoon going with the article was, you know, like a very effeminate. You know, guy, you know, who was, who was uh, putting together his tie and it had the European stars on it. But it's exactly what you just said. That was the argument that we are we are so persuasive simply by being so refined and so, you know, Oscar Wildean, if you want, that 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 tanks, airplanes and, and, and you know, are, the, the are harsh realities us. of geopolitics it's precisely yeah. are below us. Well, that all worked until it didn't. And, and I think we still have not entirely freed ourselves from this somewhat ludicrous idea that that the, 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 the world is just one election or one UN general council, uh, general assembly meeting away from ushering in, in the great uh, utopia. And, and as always, uh, being realistic is very often also painful. And one could also say, well, you are too pessimistic. But once again, the point is the responsible person is too pessimistic. Uh, that, that's that's the whole point. You look in the future and worry about it because that's the best yeah. way to start doing hope, something hope about it. Hope for the best and plan for the worst, right? That's precisely it, yes. Yeah, to quote an Austrian author, he when he comments, Stefan Zweig, I was talking before in the, in the pre-recording, he, he talks about how Europe, when going towards the First World War, he says civilization crumbles slowly and then suddenly, right? He Only yes. when the war started that they realized that actually European values, European... 
uh, morale in European politics had been gradually shifting towards a more belligerent uh, situation for for decades. And uh, to talk to to proceed to talking to more timeless uh, timeless topics and evergreen topics, uh, it seems to me that Europe is in a situation of of has been in a situation of of self hatred for for decades now. So we, we are going against the very things that are making us that that made us a great civilization and and even saying that that we we are a great civilization is today is is almost unacceptable w what do you think is is happening no you're right and uh, let me say something that's probably going to make many of your listeners feel very uncomfortable and this this is not going to be the one quote that will destroy my career in the future <laughs> i'm uh, gonna i'm gonna clip that, it and just yeah. <laughs> send it out everywhere but in in many ways the the high point of western civilization let's say between i don't know 1776 if you want the 1914 i think was in many ways the hype of uh, the, mm. the human species and and I, I, I mean, this. Uh, again, not, not all of this was equally distributed, but all the ideas we still live off today, yes. whether it's liberty, whether it's equality, uh, all the technological progress, it started during that period. We owe a lot to, to our you know, immediate previous answers, uh, yeah. generations. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, so and, and this is something for all the mistakes they made and all the horror they also brought upon the world. Uh, we still live off the, let's say, the ideas and, and in very many ways, the culture that they have brought forward and i do take pride in this just as i don't begrudge it any chinese person to be proud in the chinese history or any ottoman or any you know, any turkish person to be proud in ottoman history uh and you know you name it so so i think you yeah. know every civilization can or every member of a civilization can be proud of it but it's only western civilization that constantly seems to talk uh, you know to to to, to apologize or, or talk itself down now Sure, one could say, well, what you visited upon the world was worse than anything else. That is, again, I'm not denying the downsides. But of course, to, to, you know, to make it even worse, to say an even worse thing, but, but one of the reasons why Europe unfortunately was able to do so is because for a long time it was more advanced than the yeah. rest of the world. Uh, 19th century Europe and North America and, you know, and, and parts of Australia and you see these areas were in many ways, at least technologically and in other ways, further advanced in other parts of the world, especially, of course, as a consequence of the Industrial Revolution. A lot of this was by coincidence. Yeah. So, so again, this was not a great plan. So, so again, I'm not, I'm not necessarily attaching a moral uh, quality to it, but we cannot deny the outcome. Uh, and, and we still live off this, I think, to a, to a very large extent. But you see already in the 19th century a certain discomfort with this. I mean, at the end, right, uh, even Marxism uh, ultimately is a... Uh, an ideology exactly mm. exactly it, it's they they, they they kind of they took a lot of the the old catholic you know kind of kind of self-torturing yeah. uh, uh attitudes and then just morphed them into a secular ideology yeah. uh, you have to say that's one with, of the reasons why i think it, it's so it remains so appealing here in italy for example it just it oh, just yes. sits on the moral uh, pre-existing moral structure of centuries of Catholicism. And I think I think you could not be more right. And this is and you see it also. By the way, you see it also on the political right. I recently read an article, and, and this this is now becoming more common in certain areas that say, well, the worst thing that happened was the agricultural revolution because 
peasant life in the old days was, you know, it, it taught you all those important life lessons. Well, I would say, no, nobody wants to go back yeah. to this. Like this, this thing, it's, it's this, it's this, you know, blood and earth and, 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 you know, prosperity in the forest kind of ideology. Yeah, it's, it's, nobody uh, wants to go back It's the good savage theory, right? That our ancestors Precisely. lived in, in perfect uh, synergy with nature without counting that uh, life was brutal back then. Yeah, it was, it was, it was brutal. And you said something that I just want to add on to a little bit. And no human society ever lived in harmony in perfect harmony with nature no like the, the the entire existence of the human species is is based on the condition that we change the nature around us because we are physically not equipped to live in harmony with yeah. it we need fire right we need we need the wheel we need all these kind of things there is no civilization large or small that ever lived in harmony with nature again this, this is a myth even even indigenous tribes, you know, when it was the Indians in North America who almost hunted the buffalo to extinction, uh, or they burnt down parts of the the, the forests for for agricultural reasons. Yeah. So this this idea of that, and I recently again read it by somebody who I really value, also said, well, the the hunter gatherer societies are those who are truly in line with our nature. No, they are not. Human nature is to engage and and if you want to conquer nature for better or worse. Mm. This is just who we are, and and. And again, nobody really wants to live like this. All the people who promote this are part of what you described correctly before, a part of the laptop class. Yeah. So they sit at home in front of their laptop with, you know, their four screens, their, their perfect Wi-Fi, you know, in an air-conditioned place and say, life before the industrial and agricultural <laughs> revolution was greater. Yes. You know, what's what's stopping you? Yeah. Uh, you know, pack your things, go to the untouched areas of the Amazonian of the Amazon with your family and, and live that yeah. kind of life. You will find out uh, living in harmony with nature is, as you said before, probably going to be a very short life and it's not a very comfortable life. I'm just getting tired of this anti-civilizational in many ways, like anti-progress attitude. Uh, uh, technology is never a perfect solution. But it is a solution to many of the problems we have. And, and as I said, whether it's it's the left version or the right version of this, going back to a pristine state of the world, you know, where everything was harmonious. And so, no, it wasn't. I mean, even what I said before, the 19th century, I treasure in many ways, but it was not a harmonious no. century. Right? <laughs> no, de wars. definitely had, not. Yeah. But but look at it in a sense, look at, at what it brought yeah. forth in science, in the arts, in, in, in refinement in many ways. Uh, I mean, Vienna. Vienna, since I'm, I'm just saying this because I'm in Vienna, yeah. Vienna at the turn of the 20th century, I mean, from an intellectual life perspective, yes. was one of the places to be. I mean, this yeah. was from, from Sigmund Freud to, to, you know, all these other guys and, and women, of course, as well, that have been around. I mean, what a time to be yeah. alive as a, as a philosopher, as a scientist. You know, again, I'm not saying we should turn back the clock, yeah. but I, I, I'm saying maybe there is something to be learned from the past and we only condemn it. This is what bothers yeah. me, right? There is this tremendous arrogance of the presence. Oh, we all know better. And it's even worse than this, right? It's one thing if let's say, you know, the, the, the older people nowadays say they know better, but we have completely inversed the concept of experience, the concept of, of, of you know, of learning. And we, we cannot, the younger somebody is, Apparently, the, the yeah. more we, we believe that they have some secret yeah, they, wisdom. Yeah, so they, they look at the past thinking these immoral, ignorant bastards that killed half of the earth, basically, without, without being grateful that anything we have today, we have to owe it to the efforts and the hard work of our ancestors that 
really yeah. built a safe and amazing society for us. Yes, and, and no, and always say that nobody wants to live somewhere yeah. else. I mean, look at global migration movements. Everybody wants to get to the West. And again, we can talk about the, the issues for, of, of that as well. But the, the even the, the, the non, let's say, industrialized and, and electrified areas of the world, nobody wants to live like yeah. this. Uh, and I don't blame them. I mean, this is always the thing, right? This is, an, oh, I don't know, try to export the Western model of living and, and, and it's all, you know, cultural imperialism. And, and, and parts of that are definitely true. But I do understand when people in the Democratic Republic of Congo would like to have running water and reliable electricity. I mean, I, I find this is, you know, this is not Western imperialism. Yeah. This is just a desire. I mean, people have families there, right? They want the future for their children. They want the, you know, the, all the things that we take for granted. And I have, a, again, I have a lot of sympathy for, for, for those people. But my sympathy, and this is, I think, another important point, my sympathy means I want to enable them to live such lives where they are. And not and not kind of once again, and this is another quasi cultish religious element to say, oh, no, we need to bring them to the West. And then, then you know, mass migration is our atonement for, for our sinful past. Uh, you're not going to yeah, help anybody while keeping them poor in their country. Let's add to that. Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. yeah, I listened to one of your podcasts recently where you interview a person about Roman history. And at a certain point, he mentions a medieval intellectual, Ibn Khaldun, I think his name is. And uh, the quote is, societies grow uh, powerful, successful, wealthy, and decadent. So do you think when we'll look back at this time 100 years from now, it will be the irreversible descent of Western civilization in its uh, historical cycle, or do you think we can we can repair this in some way? I I tend to be more optimistic because one of the parts or kind of one of the the, the stories of Western civilization is that it has gone through forms of renewal uh, time mm, and again. Yes, I mean there there is a reason why we use the term Renaissance, yes, yeah. right? Uh, so. So I think I, I don't think that necessarily. I mean, the demo, demographic developments worry me because if there are no Europeans around, it's going to be very difficult to maintain, uh, uh, you know, Western slash European civilization. Yes. Uh, but that being said, I think we have to drill down a little bit uh, on on what what is this decadence, and and I think we have to distinguish between material comfort is not necessarily it's not a threatening decadence no. right you can live in material comfort and still have your values in order yeah look at way. the romans precisely precisely yeah. right and and a certain degree of comfort a certain degree of leisure time is necessary to be a great civilization yes. right if everybody toils away uh then then nobody will have time to write music to do philosophy yes. to you know write plays but I think that the problem we have in the West is a is a is a is a is a particular form of decadence you find now on both sides of the of the socioeconomic spectrum. Uh, one form of decadence is the one you find uh, uh, within the elites, and it's it's a decadence in the sense of a lack of existential struggle. I mean, this is for me the core, at least what I believe, what ails Europe mm. is that some parts of our population are off materialistically, economically, so well that they don't really have any particular challenges left in life yes. anymore. But everybody wants some kind of, you know, meaning. And, some and, form and, no, of and no religious structure to, to give that Pre meaning. Exactly. Yeah. Precisely. So, precisely. So you're bored, meaningless, and you want to do something with your life, and you turn out that, that transitioning exactly. the whole so continent what, to you, net zero is what you do, right? 
Yeah, because what, what is the one thing that you can struggle against? Uh, it's basically the struggle against the very society that enabled you to live a yes. struggle-free life, which is, which is by the way, uh, this, I'm, I mean, I'm almost quoting this verbatim from the second half of, of Francis Fukuyama's End of History, the book, right? I mean, again, it, it's a book everybody talks about, but not enough people have read, hmm. because I think he makes some very good points. It's exactly what he says, that the problem for, for liberal democracies will be that it's going to be very boring for some people. And what do you do if you're bored? Well, you find something to, quote unquote, entertain yourself. And in many ways, in the upper classes, right, this has become, would you describe so correctly, a form of self-hatred. But then we have a second element of this, which I think is more insidious also. Um, the, the, the part of the population that could, if you want, uh, lead a rejuvenation, um, we have put them in an, in an almost, you know, brave new world yes. state of, of, you know, mass entertainment, uh, 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 welfare state. Anesthesia uh, through uh, overstimulation. Exactly, exactly. And as, as an, I, I'm a huge fan of the welfare state. Don't get me wrong there as well. I don't want people starved in the streets. Yeah. But I think that, that the true welfare state would always have its main goal to reintegrate people into a meaningful yes. life, whether it be through work, through family, through local communities. But now there is this tendency to say, you know, what's so bad if, let's say, you know, 40% of the population is just spending time in their basement playing video games and watching porn? And uh, they are right in in a sense that yeah those people will not are not going to lead a revolution Th those people are not going to rise up for anything uh, unless they feel that kind of comfort threatened and to take a, a clear example of this I mean if you take France um, the French government is absolutely correct when they say listen people we need to rise the retirement age uh, you cannot have a life expectancy of over eighty and everybody retires you know short you know, yes. slightly over sixty and and now all of a sudden people revolt uh, and that's just that's you know it's it's a it's again it's a it's an arrogance of a of a of a present tense culture that no longer or barely has any regard for future generations. Yeah. So so there, and, and this this is a problem all over Europe. Um, if you no longer identify with the idea, at least tacitly, that you are part of a larger flow of history, that uh, you know that that there are certain invisible courts as abraham lincoln said that that connect you with previous generations and, generations, and generations yeah. that are yet to come exactly yeah. if you think it's only you here and now yeah you're not going to care about these things and and that is that that is going to be self-destructive at, at at some point and at the moment i'm pessimistic about the potential reversal um at least in in parts of western europe i, I still hold out in in parts of eastern europe uh but to be very clear this is a challenge all countries in the world have. Mm. I, I think which, which also shows you a little bit how thoroughly for all the criticism, how thoroughly westernized the world has become. Yeah. Uh, yes. that, that Ch China, is, China is having the same problems. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. For, of a young generation but, that doesn't want to want to be working anymore, basically. Yeah. But I think you're absolutely right. But we see what we see, of course, with the Chinese is they actively try to address yes. this. Uh, so, so, so China is, for better or worse, and I mean, this is going to be, I think, a huge factor also in the years to come. I mean, they're actively promoting this form of new Chinese nationalism exactly for the reason that you just said, because the argument is uh, if people don't believe in China, uh, we're going to have a political but also a social and economic problem. So, so at least they have realized the problem. Uh, I'm not sure we have realized the problem in Europe or to some extent also in the United States. We, we see this this wish and this willingness to go back to 
old conservative morals. For example, in Italy, we, we recently had the, the election of, uh, of Giorgia Meloni, right? And anyway, you see the whatever your opinion is of the political spectrum, you, can, you can't not admit that is, it's, it's a necessity of at least a part of the population to go back to old, more, more conservative European values of, of family, of national identity. And I think a lot of people feel an, a, a need for that. I think that's true. I think that's true. I mean, I have to admit uh, everything I've heard and read about uh, Georgina Meloni, I find quite impressive. Um, I, I think she has correctly articulated a Th lot. That of won't the, get you a lot of friends problems. in Italy. I know, I know. But I think, you know, I, 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 I try to be ahead of the curve. Yeah. I think there will be a change of attitude, or at least I hope so. Um, but of course, will people then also be willing to make the necessary sacrifices? Uh, because that, that's, it's, as I said, it's the same like in France, right? Uh, you can have a strong nationalist party in France, but if, if your nationalism is limited to voting for that party, but you're not, for example, willing, let's say, to work two years longer than, let's say, you're, you know, somebody did before <laughs> you, uh, if you don't realize that in order for the nation to be sustainable, uh, you cannot have a, a constellation where people go to university until 30, work until they're 60, and then they are in retirement until 90. Yeah. Uh, if you're not willing to make this this kind of real life changes and say, okay, being part of the nation, of course, then also means sacrifices. Uh, if that is not going to be part of the conversation, I'm not sure that all these right wing parties, whether it's in Hungary, in Poland, in Austria, in Italy, will actually have an effect. Uh, I like the the, the I, again, I like the way that 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 Meloni was uh, uh, campaigning. I, I like the the family god country idea. I think those those are, are, are I think those still have appeal. I think those are important for many people. But I think at some point you will also have the Italian people to say to to re-energize, to rejuvenate a nation is one of the most difficult tasks a government can have. And it will demand sacrifice uh, one way or another from each and every one of us, uh, right? It, it will mean, for example, you know, that, that those who don't have children probably have to give more to those who have children. Uh, it will mean that we have to distribute no longer to the elderly, who are increasingly a majority of the population. We have to distribute to the young, to those who, who are the ones who, who can build the future. And will then everybody play along with this? So, so this is a, a real challenge. Yeah. I think if you make the argument like this, I think people would get along, yeah. right? If, if you say, this is not us punishing you, this is or just po or even posing it as a question, right? To, to say, you can, we can either raise pensions by 5%, or we can raise family support by five five percent. Uh, one is gonna help us ensure the the sustainability of Italian people, Italian culture, and Italian civilization. The other one is, if you want, just then part of the long sunset and the the most like disappearance of of Italians. And you have the choice. I do think that people probably would be willing to make that sacrifice if you tell them that it is a sacrifice, yeah. right? You must. The thing is. If somebody makes a sacrifice, you have to value this, yeah. right? You have to, to pay them respect. You have to pay them uh, a recognition. Uh, and, and I think if that would be the case, uh, I think change would still be possible. But, but we no longer have, I think, this open conversation uh, in Europe, yeah. which, which, again, in many ways boils down to, 
uh, do we care about about the previous generation or do we care about the coming generation? And and I would love for any political movement to care about to the pose, future to pose that question. Yeah, it's yeah. funny you mentioned uh, God, family, country because uh, Giorgia Meloni actually received a lot of criticism for that uh, that slogan because it actually reckons back a bit to uh, to fascism because M Mussolini had the same slogan. But we should also add that it he took it back from more uh, Roman morals, right? Uh, from uh, um, specifically uh, Augusto, if I'm not uh, if I'm not mistaken, but today saying that in a very uh, very left wing political landscape is uh, very dangerous. So that's that's why she got a lot uh, a lot of blowback as well. No, that that is that is true, uh, and I have to admit I, I found that in the whole debate, uh, particularly Italian media actually behaved quite responsibly because, as far as I can tell, it was mostly people outside of Italy who tended to 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 scream fascism, fascism. Um, I mean, there, there is a tendency, and and this is also something where, where particularly the right has to be more outspoken. Every political party that's left of center, if they are voted into power, you immediately have the claim of fascism. Every major news media outlet, they have one article yeah. where they just exchange a couple of names, but it's pretty much the same yes. thing. Um, and, and no, it, Italy is not on the brink of, of descending into fascism. Uh, you know, in many ways, if the Italian political system is so dysfunctional, uh, I'm not. I'm not entirely sure what it ever is going to descend into. But, <laughs> what, but if it's ever going to be able to manage two more, more than two years yeah, of a single exactly. government, right? Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Precisely. So this is just. Uh, this is. I think this is, as you say, is ridiculous. And uh, the the idea. Yeah. I mean, as somebody said. So the the struggle is between, you know, God, family, country. Or uh, it's not necessarily a slogan that the one I'm, I'm saying now, I, I, I agree or disagree with, but I think it's, it's an interesting one, right? And say, okay, and the other option is, is you know, atheism, globalism, and uh, transing your kids. And, and, and I think that is not entirely wrong. Uh, th there is a larger cultural battle going on and, and or has been yeah. going on for a while. And I think what, what many fear, maybe justifiably so, or maybe not, or some also welcome, is that you have a particularly a cultural awakening on the right. I mean, that increasingly, whether it's in Italy, whether it's in the United States, at least certain parts, are much more outspoken about exactly what you mentioned. Uh, the, the argument that no, no, like family matters, uh, the, the country matters, a God actually still matters. Uh, whether one believes in it or not, but at least as a as a kind of a, a rallying cry for, for for the nation, if you want, or as a, an integral part of communal yes. life around the church. And I think it has appeal. Yeah. Uh, in 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 many ways, yes. uh, be, because we know that in in you know these strong families, strong local communities, all, almost 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 exclusively. Uh, have benefits for the people living in such in, in such close knit communities. Again, once again, I'm not going to go back to the medieval times or pre-industrial yeah. times, or or you know. But but I think we have to be honest about this. That that loneliness uh, uh, or kind of kind of pure individual autonomy has significant downsides. We are as and we saw this also again during COVID. We are not good in being in isolation. Yeah. Uh, we, we need community. We need these things around us. And I don't think that uh, a term you mentioned early on, I think modernity has not really found uh, a good answer yeah. to that problem with their emphasis on 
on individuality, yeah. which I, I treasure, right? It's a great thing, but I don't think it's on the long run sustainable. Yeah, uh, it hasn't found a way to to meld individuality with a greater sense of meaning. Exactly. And this is precisely what you just said, which is why you now have these new sources of meaning, whether it be, you know, gender ideology or environmentalism or the most radical form of environmentalism uh, uh, or globalism, all these kind of things. This is what I say. So, so some people always say, well, isn't this all a, you know, a great conspiracy by the World Economic Forum? No, I don't think so. I think it's just a I mean, they, they might play a part in this. But I think it's it's mostly uh, the desire of very wealthy, very at least IQ wise, very intelligent people who have not yet found uh, a, a lasting or significant source of meaning in life. Yeah. And, and that's not uncommon, by yes. the way. Um, if you look at at every radical movement in history, the, the you know, all of them almost, the main carriers were always the educated and and yes. somewhat materialistically. Uh, well-endowed middle and upper class we, we don't know they happened of course don't get me wrong but but we don't know of significant ideological revolutions driven by the working or the uh, the, the the agricultural class uh, that, that that's not how it, how it usually work right all you know the french revolution the american revolution the russian revolution the people instigating it planning the it behind it well the yeah. intellectuals the, the the intellectual is much more prone to the revolution than the, the than the the common worker or the the, the you know the the the, 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 the common yes. peasant and again I mean this in a positive but not a negative yes, way definitely yeah yeah Ralph going towards a, a conclusion I'm going to ask you the uh, one of my final questions which is do you have any advice for young people for that young 20 year old who is listening to us who has a, maybe a, is a bit fearful of the future. Do you have any advice on how they can do better in life? Uh, well, I I'm, I'm usually don't give life advice. Uh, I think that the, well, one is actually it's two pieces, I would say. Uh, one, maybe the most important one is, uh, and, and I know this sounds ridiculous, but, uh, but I think it's really crucial. I never lose a sense of humor. Uh, and what I mean by this is uh, what I always find most frustrating with all ideologies, whether they are on the right, the left, you know, wherever, is the first thing the ideologue loses is his yeah, sense of humor. Take themselves too seriously. And exactly. Because and, if you laugh at something, you, you have to see it from another perspective, necessarily. Precisely. Right? Precisely, and it also exactly, and it also helps you know sometimes to to find oh my you know what what was okay, it, it 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 tells you that 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 life is not all about one issue, yeah. and this is by the way uh, also what is a great sign of of civilization as well. I think every great civilization allowed for a certain element of humor, right? Whether it was in ancient Rome, uh, whether it was in in uh, you know nineteenth century Europe, where you had from Nestroy to Moliere in France, right? Kind of where you had all these people making fun of the societies they lived in. So this is my first piece of advice. Don't be super serious, even if it's a serious topic. Humor helps you to convince yes. people. Uh, if you make people feel good, right? If you make them feel lightened up, they will be much more likely to listen to your yeah. message than if you come at them with a sledgehammer and foam at your mouth. <laughs> uh, it's, it's not it's yes. not gonna like you're not gonna convince anybody. And the second thing is um, read history, right? Uh, I think, you know, as you did kind of particularly as you do on your podcast uh, with the evergreen topics, uh, many of the things that we discussed today, you'll be surprised yeah. how much of it has been around before one way or another. So many things right from from I don't know, again, from from gender to the environment, all of these things have been around before. I mean, if you just to give you one example, 
if you read, I don't know, let's say about, about some of the, the, the French intellectuals shortly before the French Revolution, they had all you know, everything from, you know, from from, you know, pansexuality to gay sex to orgies like this has all been around. Yeah. So, so even the, the much vaunted sexual revolution uh, of, of modern times. Again, it, it got maybe more, but all of this has been around before. Yes. So so we truly stand on the shoulders of our ancestors. And again, I think it makes us look at the world a little lighter. Yeah. The world is not going to end. The, the world is never going to end uh, because the planet is not going to care if human beings are on it or not. It's it's going to you know continue uh, to run in circles around the sun and uh, remain a happy warrior in, in you know whatever the issue is. It, you never reach the perfect state, but I think every one of us can make a contribution yeah. to make it a little better. But but generally, what my I, I know I repeat myself, but it's so important for me. Um, the the growing humorlessness and the dryness and the the the, the constant the sky is gonna fall tomorrow attitude, uh, I think is tiresome. And and no matter where you stand politically, you say you know I take these things seriously, but it's not as if I can't get up in the morning and and you know and enjoy a beautiful sunrise because the sunrise is still going to be there tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh that's a great way to end it, uh, Ralph. Uh would you care to tell people where they they can find you if they want to read more about your work? Sure. I mean, the best way to do it is you just google my name, Ralph Scholhammer, which I'm sure you have it probably written somewhere in the description yes, of this podcast. Exactly. Uh, and usually that brings you directly uh, to my uh, to my homepage. Uh, again, it's a very old-fashioned homepage. I'm horrible with new technology, <laughs> but you'll you'll find everything you know every everything i've written or talked about and also the the other links to all the other social media on there um so that's going to be a very a very easy way to 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 find uh bo both my writing and my my speaking if anybody should be inclined to do so fantastic and you're very active on twitter so i do suggest that people give you a follow there Yes, it's a horrible, it's a hate platform, but uh, I know I, I, I'm occasionally sucked into it. Like, I, I, I admit it. Yeah, yeah. Ralph, it was a real, real pleasure. I think uh, we touched on so many topics and I'm really intellectually very satisfied. I feel like I had a, a really good intellectual workout and I hope that people listening find this illuminating as much as I did. So thank you so much again for being so generous with your time. I can't state again how much I appreciate it. No, no, it was my pleasure. And to be honest, I hope we can do this again. All right. The events are gonna gonna come uh, spilling in from everywhere. So I think that a lot of the topics we have touched on today, we might should revisit them yeah. uh, in the not too far. Yes, future. definitely. Also, because I repeat that Italian media, but media in general is doing an appalling job at, uh, do, at, the, at what they should be doing for society. So it, uh, it's up for us podcasters to step in and give some real information yes. where necessary. Yes. Yeah. Ralph, have a great day and uh, say hi to beautiful Vienna for, for us from, uh, from Italy. If you do the same to Florence, I will. Ciao. You too, thank you. Ciao e grazie per aver guardato questo episodio fino in fondo. Se questa conversazione ti è piaciuta, qua trovi una selezione delle migliori clip dalle ultime settimane. E non ti dimenticare di iscriverti al canale del podcast. Ci vediamo alla prossima.